You can help keep the Historian's Podcast on the internet by clicking our GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. In October 1978, a boat goes aground on the Chesapeake Bay. This incident becomes the focus of my new book, The Spy Who Knew Too Much. What happens on that day is when the Coast Guard goes to investigate this boat that's gone aground, they find bullets scattered on the deck. They go below into the galley and they find top secret documents and they find a burst transmitter uh, which is used for communicating with satellites. But there's no sign of the boat's owner, John Paisley, a former CIA official. What's happened to John Paisley and why he has disappeared or perhaps committed suicide becomes the focus of an investigation of the hero of my true life book, Pete Bagley, a former CIA officer. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're joined by Howard Bloom uh, talking about the spy who knew too much, his new book about the recent history of America's Central Intelligence Agency. Mr. Bloom is a former New York Times reporter. While at the Times, he was twice nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. He lives in uh, Connecticut. Okay, what happened uh, to the, the man who had been in the boat? Well, it depends who you talk to. Uh, Ten days after he seems to have disappeared, a body wrapped in 38 pounds of chains manages to surface in the Chesapeake Bay. The body is unrecognizable after being immersed in the water for 10 days, but the CIA immediately decides that this is Paisley, and they say the bullet wound behind his left ear means he's committed suicide. But mm. none of this really makes too much sense. I mean, if you want to find out who is this body, the first thing you do is you look for fingerprints, uh, except the CIA says, oh, well, we've lost his fingerprints, which is, you know, the sort of excuse I used to give to my teachers, <laughs> my homework, the dog is e eating it. Uh, so then they try they look at the autopsy. The autopsy says the body they found is five foot seven and weighs 140 pounds. Well, Paisley's records when he was in the Merchant Marines has him 5'11 and 170 pounds. The underwear on the corpse that's brought to the surface is a size 32. In Paisley's home, they're size 36. But even the explanation of how he committed suicide has people wondering what really has gone on. According to the CIA, here's how his death occurred. He hmm. wraps himself. He's on, standing on the deck of, of this boat. He wraps himself up in 36 pounds of chains, trundles over to the side of the boat, manages to jump off, and while in midair, he takes his right hand, because he's right-handed, reaches across his body, and shoots himself behind the left ear. Now, that's an explanation that uh, we require a very nimble acrobatic uh, John Paisley, and it's a very nimble explanation, but it really doesn't hold much sense, and that inspires the hero of my book, Pete Begley, to begin his investigation to what went on because he believes it, it holds the key to all the CIA's blown operations mm -hmm. over the past decade. And we'll get into that, but before we leave the corpse, I can't understand how the body surfaced after having all these chains wrapped around it. Yes, that's one of the, the great mysteries. Uh, I, 
I think whoever pushed the body overboard hoped it would get marred in, in the sand and mud of the Chesapeake Bay, but somehow it, it got loose. Maybe a boat, uh, passing boat shook it loose, a propeller, whatever, but it manages 38 pounds. It's, it's wrapped like a mummy in these uh, diving weights, and yet it still surfaces. Now, who is this Bagley? It's, uh, they call him Pete uh, Bagley, uh, who's now investigating the case. Uh, Pete Bagley is a, uh, a CIA officer. He's a former CIA officer at this point. He comes from a, a very celebrated American naval family. Both his father and his uncle were admirals. Both his brothers were the first two siblings ever to become admirals. But Pete had uh, bad eyesight, so he couldn't go to Annapolis. He goes to Princeton instead, uh, joins the Marines, and uh, afterwards joins the CIA. And as a CIA agent, he's sent off first to Europe uh, after World War II, and he's fighting in the back alleys of the Cold War. Uh, he knows where all the bodies are buried. He's, he's even burying some of them. And he works his way up in the agency and becomes head of uh, counterintelligence of the Soviet bloc division in Langley, Virginia. Uh, and he's on the fast track uh, to perhaps become director of the CIA. Most of his associates believed this, this was what uh, would become of Pete. But then suddenly he's accused of being the mole that's making all these operations that were running in Russia suddenly fall apart, completely collapse. And he's investigated for a year. He's cleared. He's given what's in effect a promotion sent off to Belgium to be station chief. But once these questions have been raised, they never really go away. And he feels his reputation has been tainted, and that's one of the reasons why he, he decides to retire. And he's living quite comfortably in, in retirement. He's a very interesting man. He's interested in all sorts of things, everything from Shakespeare to to horticulture, to bird watching, and but then this body surfaces on the Chesapeake Bay, and he realizes this is his opportunity to find out what went wrong in the agency, to find out about the mole, to prove all his suspicions, and also to redeem his own tarnished reputation. Pete Bagley is deceased by the time you start working on this on this book, is is he not? Yes, he is. Yes. How do you come up with all this information? Part of a reporter's job. You know, this book is written, it's meant to be suspenseful, but it is a New York Times reporter's or a former New York Times reporter's account. Everything is true. I, and when you pick a topic, you want to be able to get into the character's mind, but you can't invent things. So one of the reasons why I decided to pursue this story is that Begley wrote a couple of memoirs. You could get inside his head. He said many things on the record, and I can use these for a source. He also was survived by a, a large family. I was able to talk to uh, some people who were close to him and also people in the agency. And he's given interviews in, in the past. And so I was able to take all this information and create what I think is an accurate portrait of Bagley, where he becomes a, a fully blown character in, in this book. When I quote him, uh, everything he said can be traced to something he's either written in one of his books or, or said to uh, newspaper interviewers. Anything in quotes is 100% accurate. One thing that's unusual in this case is there's 
a love affair or that develops into a marriage between two people of the next generation, Bagley's daughter and the son of the man who was um, trying to prosecute Bagley. Yes, it's it's a a fascinating story. It begins first in Cold War Europe, where Bagley is, is based in Vienna, and he has to smuggle out a Soviet defector. This Soviet defector is a KGB agent by the name of Peter Darabin. And at this point, uh, Vienna was a city uh, divided into four different sectors, the U.S., Russian, French, and British. So how are you going to get them out uh, from the U.S. section? The only way out, out of there is you have to go through the Russian section. And Begley comes up with this idea, we'll take him on a train, which is called the Mozart Express and it's called Operation Mozart Express in CIA history, Begley puts this defector in a box, a crate, <laughs> marked farm machinery, and they load the crate <laughs> onto the train. Begley's sitting there. He's got his hand on the revolver, and it's making its way from the U.S. zone, and, it's, and now it has to go through the Soviet zone. Suddenly in the Soviet zone, the train comes to a screeching halt, and a bunch of, you know, Gun-toting, rifle-toting, uh, Soviet soldiers come on board. And like that scene in the, in the movies, they want to see Begley's papers. And he shows them his papers while keeping one hand on his revolver. He doesn't know what to do because he can't afford an international incident. At the same time, the CIA needs this defector uh, back in, in Langley, Virginia. Uh, and the Russians now start kicking the box. <laughs> and the guy inside is, you know, doesn't know what's going to happen next. But they decide not to open it for some reason. And eventually the train starts moving. And three days later, Bagley and the defector are in a safe house in Maryland. And he's being debriefed. Flash forward about 10 years or more, 15 years. The defector is now an analyst working for the CIA. He's being paid by the American taxpayers. And Bagley and him have become close. And he's also close to other people at the CIA. The defector arranges a dinner party. He's acting as Cupid between Bagley's daughter, who's now a CIA officer, and the, the son of another CIA officer who was part of the, the, the team that was investigating Bagley. And these two young spies, the second generation, hit it off. They, eight months later, they wind up getting married at a a lakeside in Virginia at a home owned by one of Bagley's brothers, who's a U.S. admiral. And it's a, the two great American spy families have this, uh, are united because of this defector that Bagley had to smuggle out of Europe. That's, that's, that's part of it. That's the, the good romance in the book. The other sort of uh, love, every spy story needs sort of a, a love or even a, a sex angle. And you see Paisley, uh, working with another uh, Russian spy in place, working inside the CIA, is investing in sex clubs in Washington, D.C., and the uh, Virginia suburbs where CIA officials and government officials are, are, are frequented. And that's, of course, a, a way for the Soviets to get information. And Paisley's the man that the CIA says uh, was in that boat and killed himself. Yes, they say uh, he, he, he was, uh, they say also that at this point he was retired from the CIA, but it's, it's documented that he is 
as an office still in the CIA, and he's working on a top-secret study of Russian nuclear capabilities. We find out about these Russian nuclear capabilities is also another fascinating part of this puzzle. It seems the KGB has a garage where they keep all the official limousines. We had an agent working in this garage who's able to set up an electronic device inside the limousines so that on an antenna on top of the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, we're able to pick up the conversations of the key Soviet officials. Uh, and they are talking about uh, nuclear test ban treaties, and we found out a, find out a good deal of information this way. Uh, Bangley comes to the conclusion that John Paisley was the mole, and the mole is the uh, really an agent for the KGB who's inside the uh, CIA? Yes. Uh, a mole is basically a double agent, uh, someone who burrows his way into your intelligence service and is really serving the opposition. Paisley is also working with other defectors who come over here. What Bagley discovers is there's been this whole group of Soviet defectors coming into the United States. Bagley believes that these are dispatched agents. These are really <laughs> still, these are men who are still working for Russia, uh, and they're, they're here to spread different disinformation. And Paisley is an inside man who's telling them what, what the CIA wants to believe or what they're looking for so they can be fed the wrong information. You know, this is real-life intelligence, and it's, <laughs> it's sort of convoluted. It is, as one spy master has called it, a wilderness of mirrors. And, and what seems to be truth one day is, turns out to be falsehood the next. And putting all the pieces together uh, requires a real-life Sherlock Holmes, and that's what uh, Pete Bakley is. Let me ask you about the effect on on reality. For example, does this case relate to the invasion of Ukraine? You ask a, a very interesting and important question. What what is discovered is is a continuum of treason. That the Russians have a program where they are infiltrating mole after mole into the CIA, and if Paisley was a mole in place. It's logical to believe that his successor is there right now. And we are fighting a de facto war against Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians are being killed, and the Russians are getting intelligence from, arguably, from a mole inside the CIA about what's going on. So, yes, uh, it's something that's uh, a real concern for today. And inside the CIA at this moment, there are two warring camps, those who believe that Bagley was correct, and another camp believes that uh, Bagley is paranoid. And uh, this feud continues to this day and is making counterintelligence activities, that is, the search for a mole within the agency, uh, relatively dysfunctional. Now, if Paisley was the mole... Was he really killed uh, in, in uh, the whatever happened on the Chesapeake Bay? Well, what Bagley decides is that he was really exfiltrated by the Russians. He realized that the jig was up when he the, three days before this suicide, quote unquote, on the Chesapeake Bay happens. The CIA has finally become to wonder about. Paisley, and they've called him in for a lie detector test. Uh, 
You're supposed to be at that level every year or at the most every two years. You're supposed to go and ha- before a lie detector uh, evaluator. And uh, Paisley, for 25 years, somehow had managed <laughs> not to be uh, have to, to appear before a, a lie detector uh, evaluator. So after he gets his notice that he's going to have to report, he suddenly disappears. And uh, it seems that the, there was a Polish uh, freighter going through uh, the Chesapeake Bay that day and then later made its way to Europe and, and vaguely theorizes that Paisley was smuggled off his boat. Someone else's body was replaced. They thought it would remain buried at the bottom of the Chesapeake Bay, wrapped in the chains. For some reason, it it didn't stick, floated to the surface. And then 20 years later, our hero, Pete Begley, is in Moscow with a former uh, Soviet KGB general who, who leads him to the cemetery where he implies that Paisley is buried. So he died years later in Russia. Yes, yes. Uh, and what, you know, that's history. But what's happening now is, is his replacement working inside uh, the CIA as you and I are speaking? The, um, uh, the mole, is there another, another mole inside the CIA? Y- yes, and that's, you know, uh, you know the spy wars continue. Uh, and you can, and if the Russians have an idea of what our plans are and what what we're doing in the Ukraine, what we're doing next, and and who are our our spies on the ground there, it puts us at a real disadvantage, and it puts Ukrainian lives and, and the whatever possibility of victory for the Ukrainians in, in that war with Russia in jeopardy. You say that currently in the CIA there are two camps: uh, those who refuse to believe. Uh, the Russians are sending KGB officers to be moles, and those who do believe it. Which side is winning? I mean, who? What? What is the CIA doing now? The war you refer to, Begley and his supporters call it as the master plot, and they believe that this master plot is that they've been dispatched agents, agents sent here as defectors to work hand in hand with the mole. The other faction in the CIA is called. The monster calls it the monster plot. They say this is just paranoia. Uh, this can't be happening. And central to this is a agent by the name of Yuri Nisenko, a KGB defector, who winds up at first being put into a CIA prison, a precursor at Guantanamo. He's kept in a 12 by 12 foot cell for two years, <laughs> uh, barely allowed to even go out and exercise. He's eventually exonerated and put on the CIA payroll. But the legacy of this dispute, as you point out, exists till this day. And we're, you know, counterintelligence has to be aggressive for it to be effective. Uh, we, you have to assume that your agency has been infiltrated. Uh, we, the CIA has found <laughs> infiltrators in the past after it's too late. But they're very complacent about it. They, they, don't, they don't want to believe it's happening now. And I think that's extremely naive. And in matters of intelligence, it's not just naivete, it's dangerous. What happened to Pete Bagley? Did, did he meet an untoward death or die of natural causes or what? Pete Bagley died in his 80s. He had cancer, surrounded by his family. 
he was a, a, a big Shakespeare fan, and he, he, he was surrounded by his family in, in his home, and he was uh, playing a, a video of Shakespeare's uh, Henry VIII, and uh, he recited the lines from memories of his famous scenes, and that night he went to bed and didn't wake up. It was a, you know, a real hero's death and also your uh, uh, publicity information says you have a solution to one of the last great mysteries of the cold war at the end of your book will you tell us what it is i'll give you hints of it as i said bagley is looking to find out what happened to paisley was there a mole so we're at a snowy day in moscow in 2007 and there is bagley with a Soviet general, KGB general, who's now retired, and he leads him after they've developed this working relationship to a cemetery where there is general claims, Paisley's grave, and that's where he's been exfiltrated. So what happened to Paisley is is, is this great mystery that's solved on this snowy day in, in Moscow. What's also interesting about that is, as you pointed out before, this internal war inside the CIA between the two sides. Even though Bagley gets this information, there are those in the CIA who don't want to believe it. Uh, they say it's too convenient. Uh, they really don't want to have any self-examination, just the way they wanted to cover up Paisley's death with these absurd theories uh, that it was a suicide, and this corpse that didn't resemble him uh, was Paisley, and that the fingerprints have suddenly vanished from the CIA records. Has there been a reaction to your book from the CIA? There has been some. There are some people who are very supportive, and, and some people are antagonistic, say, no, 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 this is just paranoia. And why that's so interesting is the book really exposes these two camps inside the CIA. There is a conference that the CIA holds to discuss this, and the exchanges between the two different sides are extremely vitriolic. Uh, one of the key supporters of the Mole theory was a CIA counterintelligence uh, head by the name of James Angleton. He's a storied spymaster, and he is one of Bagley's supporters. They're quite close. And then the son of a former director speaks, and he winds up attacking not just Angleton, but Angleton's daughters. <laughs> and with the most absurd vitriol, how they're living the high life, as this, have, this has any reflection uh, on what the spy wars in the agency. So it's, it's a very combustible atmosphere inside our intelligence agencies, and it would be sort of ludicrous, except <laughs> it is the safety of the nation. Our national security is at stake, and lives in the Ukraine are also at stake. And it's often reported that uh, Vladimir Putin was a, a KGB agent, right, at one time in his career. So he, he's very su supportive, I would imagine, of wh whatever it is the KGB is doing. Or it's not called the KGB anymore, is it? No, but it's a, just a change of names, but the practices, the, the names change, but the actions stay the same. And the KGB has been running something called Department 13. Uh, and this is the one that sends over defectors here, but they're really dispatched agents uh, to infiltrate our intelligence services. They're sent over here on a mission. 
uh, and they're they're not they're spreading disinformation. They're spreading lies that they want us to believe. And this is something that Putin was involved in, and he's still doing. And you can see how aggressive Putin's KGB is. Uh, they're going off. They're going to England, and they're they're poisoning uh, ex agents. And you have to believe that this continuum of treason is also happening here too, that they're trying to infiltrate and succeeding in infiltrating our intelligence agencies. The, the Russian spy agency, maybe to call it that, is better run than the CIA? And, and why would that be? Wouldn't they have some of the same problems that the CIA faces uh, with, uh, oh, this one's a defector, oh, this one's a, a mole? They have some of the same problems, but they're more a regimented uh organization i mean the thing about getting traders there are greedy people all over the world uh you know and, and any russian or americans it used to be that the russians had a, a greater sense of, of loyalty than americans americans were interested in maybe making a, a, a buck they thought they could sell their secrets the russians were more loyal ask what will be interesting in in the months ahead after the invasion of Ukraine, many K KGB spies are rethinking what Russia is doing. And so there are going to be more defectors approaching the CIA. However, that's also an opportunity uh, for the KGB to pass on false defectors. So <laughs> the CIA really has to be on alert. It's, it's, a, it's a unique situation where we're living in because there will be this surge of KGB or SVR as they are now, defectors, but you really have to question them mm. if they are valid defectors. What do you think of this narrative? It seems to me that the American uh, CIA or the American spy agency was sort of based on what the British had started. And the British, uh, their spies tended to be a lot of upper-class people, and it was almost like a game with them, uh, like a Sherlock Holmes sort of thing. They weren't as serious about it, and that that has carried over into the CIA, whether it carried over or not. You think that's a, a problem for the uh, CIA, that compared to these uh, nose-to-the-grindstone KGB agents, the CIA people are uh, just sort of uh, dabbling in espionage? I don't think that's quite fair. I mean, what is interesting is that the British had such a large role in the forming of first the OSS, which was our wartime precursor to the CIA, and then the CIA. However, the British spies who were doing, who were helping us, was were also one of them was working for the uh, C, uh, for the KGB, and the KGB really had a role in setting up our own uh, intelligence service. So it, again, it's this continuum of, of treason. Uh, the British, you say, it was an upper-class uh, outfit, and that was true. A lot of uh, people from Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, the OSS, which was our first war crime uh, spy service, the OSS, the initial joke was that this was oh-so-social. These were Harvard and Yale guys who, who, and a few Princeton men who came in, into our intelligence agencies. Now, though, we have a much more professional and a much more diverse uh, central intelligence agency. It's it's a it's a you know a vast network. Uh, the black budget for for CIA 
activities is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Should we be uh, have trouble going to sleep tonight? I mean, how how bad are things? I hope you can sleep well, but it's it's a time for concern. I mean, the CIA's job, and certainly its counterintelligence job, is to protect us from being infiltrated by Soviet double agents. And they seem to acknowledge that it happened in the past, but they don't seem to be willing to investigate it now. Howard Bloom is author of a nonfiction book about the recent history of America's Central Intelligence Agency, the book called The Spy Who Knew Too Much. Howard Bloom's a former New York Times reporter. Well, at the Times, he was twice nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting. He lives in Connecticut. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.